Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm your host, Marcus De Silva, and I'm once again joined by the author of Born Twice, Mr. Dale Hansen. It's a pleasure to see you again. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. And so this is part two. The way that these, so both of these episodes, uh, we recorded them a week apart, but they're going to be posted back to back. I also wanted to make a note that we're recording this. It's March 27th. And we're going to basically just jump right in. We're going to start where we left off. There's so much information to cover in very little time. So I just want to jump right in and go for it. I made a note at the end of the last episode that we were going to start uh, by discussing uh, this idea of the fifth column. And I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to the Senate hearing that's going on regarding TikTok, but I've been paying enough attention that once I heard enough about that, and then I read this paragraph on the fifth column, uh, it started to make a lot of sense. Um, and as well as discussions with John, I know uh, John Stryker Meyer, um, we discussed that a little bit um, on the podcast that he was on. Uh, but just for the listener, uh, when you're thinking about the, when you're thinking about the, you know, why does it matter? It's just a social media platform and, you know, it's people dancing and it's really just the usual dumb social media content. Um, it, it's, you have to think a little bit more uh, broad, broader than that. Um, and basically what it comes down to is, uh, as it says in the book. So here's this, this paragraph on the fifth column. As we jump into this, so this is while you're in, uh, you're in your, your schooling, essentially. Um, and, and this is part of the Part of the lesson. So the instructor was teaching the methods the communists were using in the United States to accomplish their ends. And this is in quotes now. Let me talk to you about the communist use of the fifth column. A fifth column refers to the efforts of any group of people to undermine a larger group from within. They might be likened to termites working inside a tree. On the outside, the tree looks healthy and strong, but the inside is rotten and ready to fall. The fifth column will use anything from music to marching against the war. Their activities might seem harmless, harmless and have merit on the outside, but they have a goal in mind. They want the destruction of America and to remake it into a communist state. And so just that short little paragraph tells you everything that you need to know, really. Um, and I think the other thing, too, I don't want to talk too much about this. So I'm just going to kind of make it quick and, and move on to the further content of the book, but for the listener, uh, you need to keep that in mind, especially the fact that this hearing that's going on is also bipartisan and there's a reason for that. And so it's, it's nice to see for a change that government is, is at least in this case, going in the right direction with this issue. Um, but yeah, as far as this TikTok thing, uh, you know, just be aware. And that's why I also said that we're recording this on, on March 27th. So that, by the time this episode is uploaded, uh, I'm sure there may be, you know, some developments in this. Um, and then just one last note for anybody who is interested in hearing a little bit more about it. Uh, Dan Crenshaw, um, I guess he's a senator. I'm, I'm actually I can't quite remember his position, but he's a very interesting guy. And he had an excellent uh, little series of questioning um, during that hearing that was he did a good job. So give that a listen. So uh, without further ado, I wanted to jump in uh, 
going ahead to it's right at the start of chapter 12 and actually i should also make a note so for this podcast uh obviously the first time uh last week's episode um we managed to get through about half the book in that time there's so much detail and there's so many things that we could discuss and it kind of reminds me of like my old university exams where you have two hours to fit in six hours of content (laughs) so (laughs) Basically, the idea is we're going to cover several chapters. We're going to cover them in greater detail. And then the rest of the book is just you, the listener. You have to go and buy this book. And I kind of had like a little thought about it um, as I finished it. For those of for those of you who really enjoyed the, the TV series or the Netflix series Narcos, um, for me, it gets a little bit gory at times, but it's a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting show. Uh, this book has that dramatic feel to it. It has action. It has um, emotion. It has some, I wouldn't necessarily say politics, but it talks about the the strain between special forces and government and the difference between what was happening on the ground in Vietnam and the surrounding area in the secret war, as well as what was in Washington and, and the discrepancies. And that starts to have an effect. So this, this book reads in, in such a dramatic fashion. Um, and it really is just a, I mean, again, I know I said this a couple of times during the last uh, podcast, but it's worth saying again, it's just an absolute pleasure to read this book. It's, it's really incredible. Thank you. And so with that, enough of me talking, I'm going to read this quick little uh, section here and then give it to you, uh, Mr. Hansen. So this is right at the start of chapter 12. Take two salt tablets and drive on, was the ubiquitous sign on every table in the mess hall. It said, with, it, it said without saying it that special forces brooked no whining or excuses for anything. You say you have a broken arm? Well, you have two arms, don't you? Take two salt tablets and drive on. So with that idea of, you know, just take two salt tablets and, and get on with it, um, obviously a little bit of uh you know humor involved in that but from your experiences and we're going to get to that but maybe let's start with from from what you observed uh that notion of just whatever happens to you if if you can breathe you can still move um what was your experience in observing that um it's totally correct um um behind the lines and so forth you're completely on your own um, you can call them for airstrikes. They may or may not arrive. And uh, if you're going to get out of it, if you're going to get the mission finished, you're going to have to be the self-starter and the completer of everything. And um, there's no whining or anything like that. Yeah, you're sick, so what? You know, you, you just keep on. And uh, um, it was kind of an unwritten motto. And I think it was actually my team sergeant, my team leader, who, who wrote that and put it on all the mess hall. Uh, tables, but um, it's basically there's no whining, there's no sniveling, there's no excuse uh, making of any kind. You just do the job, you know. And um, and then uh, of course special forces were that kind of people too. You know? Not that you even had to put up those signs. You know, it's good people. That's the thing that I, as a civilian, I think I'm I'm quick to forget, and that's why it's good to when I came across that passage, oh yeah, it kind of gave me a reminder, which is that 
in special forces, I mean, I think that the general idea is that, um, and that and that speaks also to, I think it's the, the Navy SEAL motto or, or mantra that the only easy day was yesterday. And that's that same idea, which is, I forget that from the outside looking in, but as hard as the training is, that's the easiest part mm-hmm. because that was yesterday and the missions yeah. themselves. And, and when you read the book, not just about your missions, but the missions of the other teams that are around you, when you hear their stories and their experiences, I mean, it's just constantly, every time you step out, it's either going to be as difficult as last time or more so, or more right. and more dangerous. Right. So yeah, that little bit of humor put in there. Um, and then there was just this one, uh, or I guess, short little passage from page 150, um, kind of lending itself to talking about being a one zero and, and a leader of a reconnaissance team. Leaders see to their people first, always. When all the needs of your men are met, then and only then do you look to yourself. And again, you know, from your position, because eventually you make it to one zero. But from your experiences looking towards the leaders that were around you, what was your perspective on them? I mean, obviously that's in the book, so. Precisely that. Um, a lot of times I think you, you see uh, leaders, in particular officers in particular, uh, they see themselves as a position of privilege. Uh, you give the order and the, and, the, and the people have to make do with it. In uh, special forces, um, uh, your people are first. Uh, uh, before you take care of your own wounds, anything, uh, you take care of them. And sometimes it even extends to when the mission is over. Um, we're all exhausted and we're tired, but the first thing we do is clean our weapons. And you say, well, you made them more tired. Well, no, I made them more prepared, more ready. And um, But anyway, we, we looked after them. Uh, if they got arrested and put in jail, I go to jail and I get them out or whatever it is. Uh, they get wounded, I go see them in the hospital. Uh, I, I go take care of their family if something happens. And um, they're my people. And it's reciprocal. Uh, they remember that. They take care of you as well. Yeah. And, and again, I know the last time we, we were talking a little bit as well about self-leadership. And mm-hmm. so I think, and just as a concept, um, and that's the thing as well, you know, as, as a reader and as a listener, it's important to obviously understand what it is that you're reading. But I think that next step, as far as application is to like, really think about the stories and, and what you've heard and what you've understood. And then how can you apply that to your own life? And how can you apply that you know, cause obviously you're not going to have the same experiences you writing this book, of course, but we all have our own things that we want to achieve and things that we want to do. And so I think it's really important to just take those lessons mm-hmm. in. I mean, that's why you write this book, right? I mean, right. it's for that purpose, right. you know, right. one of the many purposes, I suppose. Right. Right. And then I guess speaking to that as well, that actually lends itself nicely to there's a, there's a story talking about, I guess some military incompetence, I think is the way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this very dramatic story. Uh, it's a quick one that I just wanted to read because I'm curious to hear your thoughts when you <laughs> when you first heard this story. Sergeant Hansen, it seems that the country team, the ambassadors and military brass and intelligence people and politicians 
will accept any intelligence we give them about troop movements and trails and staging areas, but they will not believe anything we tell them that does not fit what they want to hear. We told them that the communists had tanks. Oh no, they tell us, you are mistaken. They are a guerrilla army and they do not have tanks. What you are hearing and seeing is tractors to make roads. And then just fast forwards a couple paragraphs and then it continues on and this is uh, Doni speaking to you. My friend Dennison was running recon and they, and they were certain there were Russian advisors on the ground with the NVA. A couple of times they saw them, tall blonde men clearly speaking Russian. He kept reporting it and the higher ups kept telling the teams how mistaken they were. Seems that the government did not want that kind of information. So Dennison and his team set up an ambush and they killed a couple of them. Dennison cuts off their heads and puts them in a sandbag that he brought for that purpose. When he gets in from the mission, he hops the first plane heading for Saigon and he storms into the regular meeting of the country team. The ambassador, CIA, and the generals are all, all there around the long table. Dennison marches up to the table and rolls the heads out on the table. He grabs one by the hair and drags it over to the ambassador and pries the lips apart and spreads the jaws wide. See those teeth? See those fillings? Those are Russian fillings. These guys are Russian. And he storms from the meeting, leaving the, the heads on the table as the next item of business. <laughs> it doesn't get much more dramatic than that. Really? And, and that kind of a thing happened. We had some character um, uh, ways of expressing ourselves. And actually, uh, Mr. Dennis and I um, actually tried calling him. He's still alive. He was uh, qu quite a bit older than I am, but he's living in Alaska in a little log cabin with his family and uh, still alive, you know, and uh, not so talkative. <laughs> well, and there's a uh, book it's called The History of Military Incompetence by Norman mm -hmm. F. Dixon. And mm -hmm. I, I read about half of this book and then I just ended up getting sidetracked on other projects, but I'm going to go back mm -hmm. to it um, at some point. Uh, but, you know, it speaks to the, I mean, it just, you would really think from the outside looking in that the politicians and generals, like, the people who are making decisions that are going to affect the lives of the soldiers on the ground, you mm -hmm. would think that if we send a team out to gather intelligence, which is what Mac V. Sog was about, this is what the, the teams are doing, and they come back with something that we just don't want to hear, we don't like that, we're just not going to... Mm -hmm. It's just how how does that come together and, and how frustrating that would be. Right. Um, I, I guess another example of that very same thing is Vietnamization, where um, the, the next project was is that the Vietnamese were to take over uh, what the Americans were doing so we could leave the country and the war would be safe in their hands. And so um, all aspects of your fighting, reporting and so forth had to reflect success. And I think in one of the missions I talked about that it was on, they snuck in two Vietnamese lieutenants. Um, on one of the resupplies, and he was there. He was specifically, the, the two of them were actually exposing my ambush by talking loudly on the radio and so on. And it was a deliberate thing. 
But yet on the end of the thing, it had to show that Vietnamization was working. They were courageous men and, and instrumental in victory uh, that we were doing. And, uh, you know, we, I guess it's a, uh, a foible of virtually all people in power and all governments and so forth. You had to reflect what the, uh, uh, the, the expectations were. You know, it's a sad thing, you know, because in all other respects, we, get, we got and received true intelligence until it didn't reflect uh, what they perceived already, such as the tanks, you know, um, another one. And that's something that I didn't even know. And, and it was interesting as well, like through reading, because I also read this book quickly because we were doing the podcast. So I, I pretty mm -hmm. much just, you know, went, went through it in a very short period of time. And obviously there's the Russia-Ukraine conflict going on, which I don't really know much about other than just a very superficial level. Um, but just having that out there and it's in the psyche and you're just considering all these different things. It's also interesting that there is considered a cold war between America and, and, and Russia, and yet there's Russian weaponry, tanks, advisors, on the NVA side and, you know, it just sort of, it makes you wonder, you know, mm -hmm. it just, it's and the Chinese. Yeah. 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 And again, uh, starting from, well, actually in the 1880s, um, communism as a philosophy at least started. And then of course, by 1918 uh, in Russia, you know, the Russian revolution and so forth. And, uh, and, and communism was spreading across the world, two thirds of the world population was under the, the the throes of it all. So it, it was a, um, a philosophy that was overtaking the world and was hard to deal with, uh, with, with all, all of the people in politics and so forth. And um, uh, very few people could, could relate to it. And uh, um, they, they really didn't want to hear that it was actually succeeding. Right. Yeah, again, if it just, it's almost like if it makes you feel uncomfortable rather than let it in, just shut it out and pretend it goes away, but it doesn't work right. like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so jumping to, jumping ahead a little bit to, I guess this is about page 162. So this is the first time you, you talk about a recurring nightmare that um, begins to affect you. Um. So, I mean, I, rather than read it myself, I think I'd just rather hear it from your own words. Um, I guess like two parts, I suppose, what that, that nightmare, that concept of that nightmare was. And then after the war, how did that affect you and how did you cope mm -hmm. with it? I think you're talking about uh, people chasing me and all that kind of thing. Like, yeah, um, I, I try to remember what I, what it was in the book. I, I would I recall being in, in my bunk and sleeping, and uh, of course you you have these nightmares of various things coming after you because we're hunted uh, when we're behind the lines and on the missions. We're being hunted uh, with multiple hundreds of people and dogs and everything else, you know. And I remember the nightmare of, of a thud, a little sound in the room, and it would be a, a gigantic snake that was on the windowsill and it would fall and hit the floor and it would slither over to my bunk. And, and uh, it would actually crawl up on the bunk and it would look at me and would be virtually human eyes. And, and uh, um, the idea of being hunted and sought for, and um, I, it, it, it would recur in various 
stages like that. And it was simply the, the phenomena of uh, being hunted, you know, and, uh, um, and regardless how well you can fight and how many times you could shoot, you could never get enough of them. You were always in grave danger and that would stay out um, uh, the rest of your life. Uh, yeah. Uh, to this day, you know, they just uh, uh, just got this room for the city uh, assembly. Do I want to sit over there? I said, no, I don't want my back to the door. You know, I'm going to see the door and, and things like that. You're always uh, alert for that phenomenon. You're, you're always behind enemy lines, I guess. And then after the war ended in your home, how did mm -hmm. that affect you? Was it something that you then had to... I mean, you obviously had to come to grips with that. Yeah. In some capacity yeah. too. Yeah. And, and it was exacerbated once when I was on leave, when I was wounded. And I think I put it in the book. Um, when I was sleeping in bed in my old, old room at home, um, it was like I had to, every sound that I heard, I had to analyze it and then dismiss it as, as okay before I could close my eyes and go to sleep again. It was just the leftover of the war. And I put on classical music because it would blot out all those sounds. And I, of all things to choose, it was Prokofiev, Peter and Wolf. And I was listening to that on the tape to tape player and I was sleeping. And all of a sudden in, in the middle of in the room, it was pitch dark and in the room, I heard these voices and it says, there he is. He's in bed. He's asleep. Let's sneak over there and we'll cut off his head and all that kind of a thing. And um, I rolled out of bed on guard and I, I charged toward the sound and only to find out it was my tape deck. And then Prokofiev's uh, um, Peter and the wolf it was when the two children found the wolf and they were going to kill the wolf and cut off its head. And of all things, uh, to pick that day to call me so I could sleep, you know, um, kind of strange. Certainly so. Oh my goodness. And, and, and <laughs> like even hearing that, I mean, that just seems to be like, there's so many instances um, through the course of this book where there's, there's close calls or there's these, I mean, really divine, something divine oh. intervening, like you, and even just that, like the irony of that, you, you know, like it's, you know, it's really makes you wonder what, what really is going on because it's just, you have to scratch your head and really can't rationalize it in any other way, but. Right. And there were several times that the only answer to survival was that God had to intervene because there was no, no rational way to explain it in, in any other regard. No. Mm -hmm. So chapter 14 is titled Ben Het and Juliet nine. Uh, Hopefully I didn't butcher that pronunciation. That'd be pretty hard to do at least. <laughs> yeah. So it, the, the, the chapter actually opens up with, um, I, I guess you could call him a, a new addition to the American forces in the form of a dog. Um, mm -hmm. his, his name starts off with a uh, bow and it's a pretty interesting story how it, how it comes to pass. And so uh, Staff Sergeant Neil Klein uh, found the dog um, in, in the jungle, essentially. Uh, he was leading a patrol into a friendly Montnard uh, village with an observer from Saigon, and he heard the snap of a breaking bone and a croaking, choking sound in the grass along the trail. 
A large boa constrictor had its last coils around its victim and Klein simultaneously saw the shiny scales tighten together and the furry floppy ears and nose of a small dog. The eyes seemed to plead. With a flash, he drew his blade and drove it through the skull of the snake, the end of its blade crunching into the gravel on the other side of its head. He flew to his knees and unwrapped the thrashing snake and blew life-saving breath into the dog's nostrils. And so this, this dog, obviously, it's a pretty significant rescue mission um, to save him. And talks about as well the bond that the dog had. And, and later on on that same page, uh, Bo loved Klein and the other Americans in the camp. Each night he made the rounds to every Green Beret, stopping at each hooch, each bunker, and the day room. His loyalty was an invisible chain between him and the soldiers. Twice when Klein and his reconnaissance team were miles beyond the perimeter of Ben Het, Bo had passed through the mind perimeter and made his way through enemy territory and found his location in the field and eased his way into the team's night position. So, I mean, even that is just hard to believe. Mm -hmm. And um, so then uh, February 21st comes around and so the next few pages start to describe this, this real sense of foreboding um, that, you know, something big is, is on the way. Um, so much so that uh, Klein said that it reminded him of, of the stillness before a tornado uh, and the sky turns black. And then all of a sudden it's just, it's on you. And what I just kind of sort of taking like a, sort of a, a macro approach to this it's there's another thing in here it's later on in in the book um i didn't highlight it but even talked about the i guess there was this massive earthquake in in alaska and it was the same sort of thing that all of a sudden the water just pulled away and then it came in with just an incredible force and this seems to be a theme in nature as well like when something is going to happen there's you know something in the air and then mm -hmm. it strikes. And that is a common thing that occurs when you're in the jungle on your missions, obviously when you're in, in the base and, and this is occurring where it just seems like something. Um, but I'm, I'm just wondering, like not even really specific, we'll, we'll come back to the specifics of, of the situation and the siege that occurs, but just kind of wondering your own perspective on that. Um, what, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh you, you can sense an ill at ease with with your people uh, and your own people. They sense things and so forth. But a lot of times it would be a, 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 a an event like like the, the nearby Montagnard village all of a sudden gets deserted and, and, and uh, some of the stores, the vendors are closing up and they're gone. And, and, and people are hearing, they're knowing that something's coming up and they close. Uh, uh, the village relocates. Uh, so they're not in the path of an invasion or something. Um, and, and then, of course, your recon teams are uh, um, discovering certain items of information. Um, uh, Saigon might hear some chatter and, and so forth. And um, uh, just a whole bunch of things come together. And all of a sudden you realize that something's up and, and um, uh, you, you don't know what it is, but there's a sense of ill at ease. And... Um, and you prepare for it to the extent you can. I don't know how you can really prepare well for what you don't know, um, but you um, you can sense it coming on. And Ben Hatt was one of those 
Um, I, I think I mentioned in the book there was this one date that started so many things, the sieges of various special forces camps all in one day in over 100 places. It wasn't 10, but 100 places being struck at the same time. Uh, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia uh, murdered half the population, and they, they, the entire valleys were filled with bodies and to the point where there was no more room to put bodies, so they dumped them in, in the, um, the, the river that went by Saigon, and then uh, bodies that were floating down the, uh, the rivers, and, um, and then uh, our uh, A camps, uh, special forces camps, were under siege. And so all of a sudden, on this one magical date, without it seeming that anyone ever communicated with each other, all of a sudden it all happened at once. Kind of a strange thing. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes you sometimes you get the feeling like like Klein yeah, in in the uh, the book you get this feeling, and then all of a sudden you think I'm going to spend the night in the bunker, I'm going to be on the front line because something's going to happen, and um, and you discover that when you went there, somebody else had the same feeling. Yeah, it's a, it's a very strange phenomenon, certainly, and so then the the siege begins uh, so sure enough the the uh, foreboding feeling was certainly justified uh, so this is a 10-day siege uh also said that the camp was uh outnumbered 10 to 1 um which is just and so i i mean i think i'll just put it to you i mean maybe just describe just describe some of what was going on yeah, um, you know, I, 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 the importance of Ben has is actually important as well. Um, in, in any major war, like with the communists and so forth, when you're, you're, they are going against a major power, uh, the major power, the, the, the country at hand would have a standing army and things like that. And the insurrection can't match in, in, in uh, tit for tat, you know, and so they do guerrilla warfare. They'll, they'll bite and attack and run and flee and all that kind of a thing. And then when they, uh, uh, there are two goals. The one was the uh, the guerrilla force, you know, the communist force um, would would build and build and build until they thought they could beat the conventional force and then they would attack. The, the, the mindset of the, the conventional force was to try to get them to go into a, a major conflict so that they could be annihilated, and that was the thing. So when the communists would think that they actually could do a major victory, they would do so, and Dien Bien Phu was the first, and the French uh, broke under the thing. Well, then they tried it in, in uh, Doc, uh, um, it wasn't Doc To, um, uh, uh, no, it was, uh, not Ben Hit, but uh, Khe San in, in Vietnam, and that was a big one, and uh, there's there's, it's, it's incredible because it's bigger than Vietnam. It, it's worldwide communist domination and so forth. So uh, when they attacked, um, uh, like they say, uh, Dien Bien Phu, uh, and I'm, I know I'm uh, uh, sliding away from your, your major point, but uh, uh, the French were begging the United States because uh, the Chinese were tied up in Korea. So they begged the United States, do not sign an armistice. Well, we kind of hated the French for the way, the way they acted in World War II. And so, so they signed the, the, uh, the armistice uh, in Korea in 54, I think it was. And so immediately 2 million Chinese 
were released from that conflict, they went over to, to Dien Bien Phu and helped defeat the French by dragging over the uh, uh, material and stuff. Well, the, the, the communists tried to do that as well in, in um, Quezon. Uh, uh, General Yap, the same one, uh, uh, orchestrated that fight, except they kind of lost. We just had far more than the French did. Well, when it came time to get to Ben Het, which is the case in point, um, they thought they had marshaled enough forces. And uh, the headlines would show uh, a major uh, a military installation defeated by the communists, not realizing that it's only 12 Green Berets and their mercenaries, but the headlines would be the same. So anyway, they, they marshaled all their forces and, and began to attack Ben Het, and they had eight uh, uh, tanks and, and massive amounts of artillery. And that began the siege. It was all timed with uh, 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 all these major other events that were going on as well. So the big story behind Ben Het wasn't simply an A camp being under siege, but it was that it was conventional forces against uh, an A team, and they thought they could win. You know, so it was a, the, the big story. It was going to be the third Dien Bien Phu. Right. Okay. And, and and you describe this battle in, there's a lot of detail. Um, as far as having Russian tanks moving in, was that unexpected um, as far as the, the magnitude of it? Actually, no, because special forces kept the same thing. They only want to hear the story they want to hear. We kept report, reporting tanks. They said, no, it's not tanks. It's earth movers or something else or just strange sounds you know um chainsaws cutting firewood you know anything but a tank right and you also describe as there there's a uh it's a helicopter uh airplane pardon me uh spooky mm -hmm. uh, describe that one for us as well if you could yeah well, uh, we, we had there's about four sizes of planes, C-119, C-141, C-130, and I think I'm missing one. And uh, uh, there's a different code name for each, Shadow, Spectre, Spooky, and, and something else. And they they, they had uh, armament, this amazing armament. And then they had that the, the Gatling gun that shot um, 6,000 rounds a minute and uh, a plane full of armament and so forth. Uh, when it would come down, it looked like northern lights, um, uh, it was a, just a, a, like a shower curtain in, in which it was all actually red and in between all those little dots that made a straight line, there were actually four more bullets and uh, uh, we had that firepower and they were so attuned that you could uh, lock in with that plane with your, your radio and they could lock in on that airplane and they could put a, a circle of bullets around you all night long. Uh, or you could direct them on, on a, a perimeter wire, wherever it was. So we had an immense firepower. And, um, and they've saved many, many special forces teams um, behind lines. You know, incredible people. So they, And they were used. And actually, one of the, uh, the tanks that they destroyed was actually destroyed by one of those uh, planes. I think it was spooky. Uh, with, with just those bullets, there's so many bullets going through the, the metal that destroyed the tank. Then every new wave of uh, support that came to us kept destroying the same tank over and over, <laughs> not realizing it was already dead. 
And actually as well, before going to Juliet nine um, to discuss your recon team, uh, Florida's role in that, uh, I just had a quick note here. Um, so you were given an, an affectionate nickname as well by mm -hmm. the, indig uh, the indigenous forces on your team. Uh, and also there's a, you, you come back to it um, later on as far as with the Buddha and the, the Buddha mm -hmm. pendants and that, and hope, hopefully we'll get to that. Um, but at this point, um, you're, I guess you're given a, a blessing more or less by, by your uh, friendlies there. Uh, just yeah. describe that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for some reason, I was kind of like a brother to them in, in many regards. And anyway, uh, they said, Hanson, Hanson. Uh, they love my name. Hanson is Hanson, you know, Chinese words, you know, other than the inflections, you know, they said, Hanson, you real Chinese, you know, and uh, uh, anyway, they went to their essentially a witch doctor, but uh, the person that could write the auspicious way to write my name in Chinese, and it was the Han from the Han Dynasty, the Warrior Dynasty. I forget what Sun was, but anyway, they put them together, and that was how I write my name, and I put it on my things. But anytime I went to the field with them to go in combat, uh, they would go to my back and with the magic marker on my collar, which is below my uh, uh, my neck and then above the rucksack, they would write the Chinese character Han Sun Kambaya Chin. Which means Hansen never die, and they, and and they believe that when God looked down, they, uh, God would say, "That's my guy. He's not going to die. I'm going to take care of him." And so they would make sure I never went to the field without that on my clothes. And a couple of chapters later, it's it's really quick. Uh, it's just like a couple of sentences, and it's just thrown in there. Uh, you guys are just about to take off for another mission. And one of them comes up to you and I guess is looking for the signing. Where is it? And I guess it was faded. And you just tell him, mm -hmm. oh, no, it's still there. And you kind of give him a wink and, and sort of move on, And mm -hmm. which I thought was right. just kind of funny as well. Um, so, yeah, so I, I guess we come to, to Juliet 9, um, your target, uh, codenamed Juliet 9, um, occurring in, in the backdrop of this. And what I also thought was funny as well, um, obviously mentioning, so this was going to take place in, in neutral Cambodia, mm -hmm. um, which again is, is one of those things that the discrepancy between what's being told to the people and what's actually occurring. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I, I guess we'll, let's, let's talk about Juliet nine. Juliet nine uh, was, um, we were, there was a, a, a platoon or a company of people doing the same thing we were on our mic force out of Contum. But uh, we were just looking for enemy uh, in intelligence that we could give to help in, in the siege of Ben Het and so forth. And uh, as we were behind lines, we were they found us right off the bat. Uh, I think within a couple hours of the uh, landing, they, we I heard the gunshot, you know, where they would alert everybody, but they were kind of on us and we were evading right off the bat. But um, uh, we were moving through some enemy territory. It was really rough. And uh, uh, just out of the corner of my eyes, we, we crossed a trail. I saw a long black thing, like a black mamba a snake, you know. And I looked at that thing and I said, that's all. That's not a snake. And I, I looked closer and I looked closer. And it was a cable wire, uh, uh, like a, a massive telephone thing. And it just told me, you know, we are really close to headquarters. And um, I, I went... 
you know, I, I got my, my, my team leader, Norm Doni, uh, who's a legend, and I, I motioned him over, and I looked down there, and I said, cable, you know, and um, and so we knew we were really close to, to the communists. And then we started to move off from there, you know, to continue on the mission. And I heard in the distance, I just very faintly, I could hear a boom, boom, you know, and I, I, I knew that was artillery. So anyway, I, I, I stopped the team, went to Donnie, and, and, and I said, I hear artillery. And uh, I, I, very clearly, it had to be the ones that were bombing Ben Het round the clock over and over and over again. And as many B-52 strikes as they made, they could never find all in silence, all that artillery. So anyway, uh, we set the team down, Donnie and I, and, and my Chinese uh, nun, who always looked like a North Korean, and he had the red Chinese star on his head. The three of us started sneaky peeing, uh, went across the uh, road system, which was the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and started up this little bluff. And, and I could see uh, the boom, boom, and I could see the leaves moving from the, uh, the thing. And I said, there they are. And, and uh, sure enough, there were rows and rows of artillery and uh, a road system taking artillery up there. And so we just took a, a good um, uh, azimuth, you know, and there's a, a, a cliff face with a rock on it. And we can find that on the map. And, you know, cross-references, that is exactly where that's at. And we came back and made radio contact. And um, uh, the, con the conversation coming back to us was get to the closest LZ landing zone as fast as you possibly can for extraction. And so as quickly as we could, we moved through enemy lines, got to the closest opening in, in the jungle and, and and they they yanked us out of there real quick and there was a sister company of mercenaries uh who were, who they couldn't very well take a whole company of people out one lift like they took us so they said get seven clicks south as fast as you can go and uh that's three and a half miles and they as fast as they could move they moved the whole thing and, and uh talking to a uh the medic who was on that one uh, he said that as soon as they got seven clicks and as soon as we got exfiltrated out of that LZ, uh, uh, according to the intelligence, 100 B-52s dropped their uh, ordnance on that site. And it was just massive explosion. He was uh, three and a half miles away and he said you couldn't stand. It would, it would knock you to the ground, just the shaking of the ground. And that was the end of Ben Hat, uh, the seizure of Ben Hat from that day, from that hour the siege was over. It just, all the artillery was destroyed. All the enemy soldiers that were ready to go in in the next attack, they were all destroyed at that point. So it was a significant mission. And when you put it into the backdrop of Dan Ben Phu and all the rest were, were had they destroyed Ben Het, the political uh, um, uh, uh, currency that it would have got in the, in the media and so forth, especially when you have the anti-war people protesting, would have been very uh, damaging uh, to the war. Yeah, that that was something I had to read a couple times because I, I well, it says a hundred B fifty twos and then ten thousand bombs fell. I had to read that. I'm like a hundred B fifty twos, and for reference, how what is the size of one of those bombs? Uh, well, it could be any size, but the standard was probably 500-pound bombs. But they might, uh, like a buster, would be 1,000 or 2,000. But most of them, I'm sure, were 500-pound uh, bombs. But if you can imagine what uh, a stick of dynamite does, and it weighs only ounces, you know. 
Right. So <laughs> they're devastating. And, and I've had them drop next to me, uh, um, you know, getting uh, support. You know, um, actually, the next mission uh, that's in the book, you know, they were, it's an amazing bomb. And there's just kind of a, a funny little note about that in there. Um, so, John, his last name, Peget? Uh, uh, Paget. Oh, it is Paget. Okay. I'm trying to be fr- French and fancy over here. Yeah, I can't okay. speak French either. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the Canadians yeah. coming out. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, John Paget. Um, Basically, he just had one thing to say because he was close to that strike as well. And all he had to say was, good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Just how significant that was. Um, And then that, yeah, that marks the end of of chapter 14. And then chapter 15 uh, is titled From Bright Light to One Zero School. So Bright Light Missions, um, I I know uh, we talked about it with John uh, quite a bit because he, he was involved uh, with a number of those. Um, so for the listeners who have already listened to that may, may already know, but uh, just tell us what, what a bright light mission is. Yeah. Basically it's a, a recon team that's off duty or it could even be a platoon, but we would be at a launch site that's fairly close to where teams are inserted. And we would simply be there on standby and if a team was in extreme danger and just needed more people on the field, or if they had great casualties, or if they were totally wiped out and missing, they would insert us on the spot. And our job would be to uh, help them or, or um, take out the bodies, things like that. And, that, and that's a bright light. We're just on standby, uh, ready at a moment's notice to go in. And so you get the call to go in, um there's a team in danger but there's a there's an interesting i made a a note of it um as far as like a one zero is concerned so uh donnie's looking at you and just very matter of fact uh states that if you spend any amount of time in recon you will face this yourself it will happen to us and in this case he's referring to needing Mm -hmm. a bright light to come and save you um so in in that situation you're on the outside looking in uh but when he said that to you you know what's running through your mind you know as far as it's it's in keeping with uh, our special forces statistics is that in a given year you know uh uh, it's a hundred percent casualties in that year you will either be killed or wounded at least once. Of course, you'll only be killed once, but uh, it was incredibly hazardous. And um, to be in the field and so forth. Uh, well, perhaps maybe the best way, it's not in the book, but um, I, I would be on a seven to 10 day mission and never have to go to the bathroom because the adrenaline in your body is fight or flight. And all the adrenaline, and the blood flows and all stuff are mainly to the extremities to the extent that you can hardly digest food. And that's how tense things are. And if you can imagine, I mean, you know, everybody's been in fright or, or, you know, for a second or two, you know, uh, but try it for, t- for seven days or 10 days and have the enemy all around you um, or wake, wake up one of your people and nudge them for guard duty because they've accidentally made a circle around you for the night and uh, gone over and tried to wake up one of your people for guard duty. And it's like, it is really tense, you know, and uh, 
but we kept doing it. We kept going back over and over and over again. Um, scary stuff, you know. And, and throughout the book, you do an excellent job of, you really do describe it well in that sense where you really pull the reader in to, to understand like just how dire the situations uh, that you, you faced numerous times. You know, again, mm -hmm. this isn't just one day. This is throughout the course of an entire seven to 10 day mission. Um, mm -hmm. And I think because of your literary background as well, it, it just has a, a flair for it where you, it speaks to the reader in this very intimate way. And it does a really great job of, of pulling you into, to really understand um, how significant the, these are. Um, and you have this interesting quote here as well, um, talking about, well, two actually that I want to get to. And so uh, one of it, uh, one of them is said that um, it is said that war can be defined as long stretches of great boredom followed by short periods of extreme terror. Bright light duty is like that. However, even in the periods of boredom, there is a tenseness that superintends everything. So again, mm -hmm. just that, that idea of, you know, and, and just prior to the, the siege, you know, there's that feel, there's yeah. always that feeling that something is, mm -hmm. is coming. Um, and then you had it, this was interesting. I, I quite like John Stuart Mill. Um, so it was mm -hmm. interesting to come across a, a little excerpt from him um, in your book. Um, and so there's this little paragraph here that you're thinking about as you're, um, you're basically just waiting uh, to hear about the progress of the team that's on the ground. And you're just kind of having this discussion with yourself, essentially, and, and you describe it here. Um, and this is from John Stuart Mill. War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks that nothing is worth war, is much worse. A man who has nothing for which he is willing to fight nothing he cares for more than his own safety is a miserable creature who can never be free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. And I, I particularly liked the end mm -hmm. of that one. Um, that whole thing, it's, and it's kind of sad when, when you read that and then you think about what it's like in today's climate. It just, mm -hmm. it's, to me, it seems sad that that really is a, a sentiment that's felt, um, <laughs> you know, and, and by far too many people. Um, but then it very accurately and matter of fact st states that um, it's up to better men <laughs> than those mm -hmm. to come in right. and, and take care of that. Yep. And Henry, uh, Henry the fifth Shakespeare's, you know, we few, we band of brothers, we, and he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he never so vile, this day shall alter his condition. And men in England now abed shall hold, uh, think themselves a curse they were not here and hold their manhood cheap while any speak which fought with us on St. Christmas Day. The same thing. As, if I had two sets of nunchucks, I could go on the other <laughs> side. <laughs> That's right. And, and so now obviously me sitting here reading that, that's where my thoughts go mm -hmm. is to the climate of today you're mm -hmm. writing this down you're carving it actually as you said you're, you're carving it into into the nunchucks at the time um but because it's one of those things where 
what what I'm curious about is, is it relative? Like, is it relative where, you know, oh, the the days of old were better than today, right? Like, that's like a common sentiment, mm-hmm. right? Um, that nostalgia aspect. And sometimes it seems to ring true, other times not so much. Um, but, you know, to bring it to point with this, when I'm reading this now, I'm thinking this is sadly quite accurate. When you were thinking of it at the time, were you also thinking that this is very much accurate? I, I was, you know, um, and, and like you, it, it's a sad uh, state of affairs. It's um, mm-hmm. perhaps worse now, you know, uh, where um, and it give me, you know, I, I my rights. I, you, everybody owes me kind of a society. You wonder, you wonder uh, how many people would be uh, there today to fill those ranks uh, of those in the past, even back to World War II and Korea and some of these other places. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't actually think I made a note of it. I think we're going to cover it when we, we come up ahead just a little bit here. But you, you discuss with Novi um, th- this mm-hmm. idea of inal- inalienable rights, I can never pronounce that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but the, and, I, and you think you make a great point. Um, what you just said is is that there seems to be a misunderstanding of what a right actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are fundamental freedoms, right, or inalienable rights. These are universal rights. You can think of them like that. These are things mm-hmm. that are just you the right to freedom, you know, just these very basic, mm-hmm. but not something to be overlooked. Um, these are, right. you know, fundamental rights. And it seems that it gets confused with I don't know, privilege, privileges or mm-hmm. comforts. I, I don't know what the right word would be, but um, there, there's a difference between, and what always gets me too is, is just as you said about, you know, World War II and Korea, like these conflicts where are you willing to put your life on the line and are you willing to take a life for rights? Mm-hmm. And, and I think when you think of it in those terms with the climate of today, um none of them would actually say that or if they if they do say they would they're they're lying um because yeah. they wouldn't <laughs> that's just yeah. the case so it's it's just how how you justify that um but i guess that's really just cognitive dissonance whatever gets you to sleep at night right mm-hmm. <laughs> right and so there's a and then just on the next page actually um there's just this quick little mention uh about SOG um, at this point during the war. Um, So this is at the bottom of page 199. It was said at the time that SOG began operations over the fence. The communists utilized about 25,000 troops to guard and maintain the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the entire distance from Hanoi to the terminus in Vietnam. Now it was was believed that over 100,000 enemy troops were committed to guard and protect the trail. Our few SOG teams tied down the equivalent of 10 army divisions. Without realizing it, the enemy proved the effectiveness of our operations by the measures they took to combat them. An entire NVA regiment of specialized troops were committed just to find and kill special forces soldiers on a SOG mission. So again, I mean, that that just kind Mm -hmm. of speaks to just trying to understand the picture of what's occurring here. Um, mm-hmm. 
It's not really surprising though. I mean, it is surprising, but it's not because when, when you see the effectiveness of, of, of the missions that these teams are able to achieve, it's mm -hmm. incredible. And I think it's actually, we, we went past it, but it's a good point to bring it up. Now you're having a discussion. Um, I forget his name, but he's the one zero from RT California. Mm -hmm. Walker. That's it. And yeah. you're, you're just having this conversation and, and it was really interesting because you're just discussing how the different recon teams have their own personality. That was the word that mm -hmm. was used in RT California was quite light four man team. Mm -hmm. And as, as he described it, they're sneaky Pete. They went in mm -hmm. and they didn't really, yeah. they tried not to engage right. RT Florida it was seven man, a little bit of a hybrid. Um, and then another team, um, or pardon me, that was uh, California who yep. had the huge team and yep. they were the kind of like the gunslingers um, yes. of the teams. Uh, but yeah. yeah, just describe that for us, what your insights are on that. Yeah. And uh, the one was uh, Arizona that was so small. That's it. And, and um, uh, it, 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 little, little small guy that ran it, a little small guy. He and I were, would always throw knives. I, I love to throw knives. Um, but he was going out one time and he said, uh, uh, he, there were four of them. And I says, you know, I just assumed he had casualties or something. And did he need anybody? And he said, no, I only take four. It's just he and another American and two Vietnamese. And uh, he says he doesn't even take the modern weapons. He says he takes the M2 carbine, uh, which is, you know, 30 caliber, but it's a small 30 caliber. And, and that's it's World War II vintage. And, and um, he says, my people don't dare look for a fight. We can defend ourselves. But he says, when I go for uh, to gather intelligence, that's what we're there for. We're not looking for a fight. And uh, highly effective in, in, in doing it that way. Um, and it was kind of nice, too, because uh, when someone bumped into me, they didn't know if they were going to engage him or was it going to be California. California was, was strong. They had two machine guns with them and two uh, 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 mortar tubes along with them. And uh, uh, boy, they were ready for bear. And they actually went down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and wiped out a bunker and spent the night in it, stopped all traffic. They were just a recon team, you know, and, uh, and I actually talked to him uh, after the war one time. And um, <clears throat> he did a stint in Africa, I think it was Southwest Africa, against the, the communists over there that were trying to, and did take over the country pretty much. And he said that he set up a Claymore mine ambush along uh, the only highway and the road, it got a road going down as the, the new regiment was going out to relieve the other regiment. And I, I can't remember how many Claymore mines, like 20, 30 of them. And uh, he, it was a massive, massive attack. And he said the only way he could manage that wide of a berth was to back off a long ways and to them, to him, at that point, it became logistics. How long can a debt cord work? And you know, can it can it carry the spark all the way? And of course, that debt cord is an explosive; it's not an electrical wire. But anyway, he got to the point. He says that there were just truckloads of people, one after the other. And when he set the thing off, he says every single person except one was down. And he said, "There's one guy standing at the end of the whole thing." And this is Walker, who in Vietnam had Team Florida, or California, uh, um, the one who actually made it more secure for the rest of us. That's right. And 
that that's Sergeant First Class Newman Ruff, who's the one zero for RT Arizona. And he had mm-hmm. a funny quote in here. Uh, <laughs> and he's talking about RT California and one zero Joe Walker. And he says, what I like about having them around is that when the enemy finds me, they are careful because they do not know that I am not Joe Walker. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so there's that that strategic element as well. There's just one quick thing here um, as far as talking about the, the one thing that you have to remember is the listener. Americans, the American forces are professional soldiers. Mm-hmm. The communist forces, yes, they're some of them are professionally trained, but they don't adhere. There's there's really no professionalism or humanity about them um the the methods that the way that they would treat their own people um they they would willingly kill and and do terrible horrible things to their own people um Mm -hmm. so you're you also have to remember that you're fighting an enemy it's pretty interesting to fight an enemy who's very willing to to kill their own people um Mm -hmm. because now the the gauges of of their values and their morals if there are any are so skewed and it makes mm-hmm. them a very challenging enemy to to fight and sure, so just yeah. this... oh yeah Amer- america was founded on the judeo christian ethic and in the psyche of america is this this uh, uh god created us and we have a value of human life mm-hmm. whereas they are atheistic and man is no more than a sophisticated animal and it can be used utilitarianly just like you would a cow or, or, or something else. And so uh, just, what you can see it in, uh, uh, is Putin is, is throwing his soldiers uh, to, to be massacred, some of them. And uh, I would imagine when he was losing seven to one, he figures I have more sevens than the Ukraine has ones, and I'm eventually going to win. And the, the cost is humans, but what are they? Well, and, and that would also explain how, you know, how could, especially as a reader or someone studying history, when you read about gulags and you go, how could something like that happen? Well, that's exactly mm-hmm. it. When you don't view uh, people as having any type of value other than just some type of organism, uh, mm-hmm. then you have no problem to, you know, massacre right. them in, in numbers that are really you can't understand. And that happens... Right. And it, and it seems interesting um, that this occurs in every communist regime. You know, it's that's not a coincidence. There, there is a reason that something like right. that occurs. Um, yeah, it's just terrible. But yeah, I mean, in this this quick paragraph, uh, it describes that um, there's a boy who had chopsticks hammered into his ears because he heard the uh, he was listening to a missionary. There was a, a village elder who was uh, disemboweled at the stake because he wouldn't give up young men in the army. There was a young girl who had every bone broken because they had no rice to give. You know, so it's just this, this really, I mean, violence, a, a really incredible level. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to imagine really, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the terror that those people would be facing um mm-hmm. which would also be interesting as well like when you're trying to earn the trust and cooperation of of the people there they're scared because they know the consequence of if i cooperate with these forces 
Mm -hmm. You know, my whole family might be killed just because of that. So yeah, it just, it makes it very difficult to fight an enemy like that. Um, So you're, we get to a point in the the book where um, there's a prairie fire emergency called uh, Team Team Ohio uh, calls for it. Um, which is bad news. This is a when a prairie fire emergency is called, it means that the the reconnaissance team is in dire condition mm-hmm. um, and, and in danger of being overrun or and cap and or captured. Um, and so you describe this story. Um, lots of conflict. Short. Um, yeah. Well, I guess we'll just say what happens here so there's fighting that's occurring eventually uh the team suffers casualties but they're able to get um taken out and you're observing them landing back uh at the base uh you see charlie uh charlie bless uh who was shot multiple times in the chest but was sitting upright next to the door gunner this is as he's in the helicopter he raised his hand in greeting as the, me- as the medics rushed to him with their stretcher. He waved them off and slid his feet down to the strut and slowly stood. His exhaustion was apparent. He tried to smile, but the effort was too great. The medics propped him up to keep him from falling, but there was no blood. He had been shot in the chest, but no blood poured from any wounds. And then the second helicopter comes in and Rich Ryan is on the helicopter. He had also been shot three times in the chest. And I, you Dale speaking here, could see the holes in his shirt, but there was no blood. I took his rucksack and rifle to relieve him of the weight. And he saw me looking at the bullet holes in his shirt. He parted his shirt so I could see. There were huge welts where the slugs struck his body. They pierced his clothing, but stopped at his skin. He faces us and states, I know I was shot. The guy jumped up in front of me as I was reloading and pointed his AK right at me. I saw the flash and smoke and the rifle bounced with the recoil and I felt myself being hit. I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, I was praying for him and so forth. The only thing you can say is God. And, uh, I think Saigon, you know, the, the headquarters people say, well, what, what that does is it shows the effectiveness of our interdiction of their supplies, that they only had half the, the powder in the bullets. And, and but the, the fallacy of that argumentation is that if that were the case, it wouldn't have had enough energy to throw the bolt back to get the second bullet in. So the only thing you're left with is that they had been shot each of them three times in the chest and went through the cloth and stopped at their skin. It's like, you can't explain that, you know? Um, and, and, and I've talked to uh, some of the Montyards in the Montyard treks at the end of the war and uh, who had, you know, the, the five or 6,000 Montyards that would try to get out of Vietnam at a time. And they had similar things that would happen. Um, uh, one went, went uh, they, they had 5,000, they were not animus, they were Christian. And one of them was designated to carry the Bible. They only had one. And uh, the communists had fired from the next ridge line. And, and, and they could twice, the one was with a, a rocket and they watched the rocket come right for the camp. And they did a 180 and went back to the shooter. 
And then the other one was uh, is that the, the three three bullets hit him in the chest, and they were afraid for the Bible, and so they open up the shirt, and the Bibles fell down, and the it stopped right at the edge, and those are the kind of things that there's no explanation, you know, uh, and other than you know God has helped us in the war, you know, and uh, I'm so grateful, you know. Well, and. The, the second podcast that I did with Roger is called Divine Intervention in Laos for mm. that very reason, because when, when we describe or when Roger describes that entire mission from start to finish and not just him, there's about eight other people who are involved, well, more, I guess, but for those mm. who are in the most immediate danger, there's at least eight more individuals and just the, the number of, and miracle really is the right word for it. Um, because it, it's just, it's not coincidence or chant, like just the level of the, the magnitude of it. It just, mm. you can't rationalize it. Um, you can't, I mean, you read it mm -hmm. and you just can't understand what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. other than there's some, something, um, mm -hmm. seem to be intervening in, in that situation. Um, and so then we fast forward uh, chapter 16 and uh, actually, pardon me, sorry, this is still within the chapter um, before moving on. The one thing I, I highlighted here, so you, you have a, a run-in with uh, Novi, Sergeant Novi again, a mm -hmm. um, little bit later on in the book um, from when we last left off in the first podcast. And so you're having a, it's quite a lengthy conversation um and you this is where we start talking about rights and and you're having this conversation and, and mm -hmm. novi describes some of the situations that he was in as far as um what communism took from him which essentially was everything um in really terrible fashion and so there's something i i, I was reading it and i was kind of like I was sort of reading and I was kind of scratching my my chin a little bit. I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. So I just kind of wanted to hear it from from your own words um, rather than reading it from the book. But there's this this portion in the conversation that you come to um, and, and you're referring to a book um, by Sax Romer, Romer, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it was regarding Egypt, um, a story about secret Egypt. So I was just wondering if, if you could discuss that. Yeah. Um, communism by the communists are always portrayed to be so idyllic, you know, while the, the people who are really in slavery uh, don't get to speak. And 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 Novi had just read, read um, I think it was Tales from Ancient Egypt. And uh, these were some, some people uh, uh, that got, got into a, a place in, in Egypt where um, it was fairly modernized and so forth. But there were certain enclaves uh, of, um, of people from before that, that had made the, the 20th century. And they were talking about the Raja, I think it was coming out of uh, Iran, Iraq, and so forth. And they, they were um, the slaves that they had and, and that they had slaves and so forth, just like in the old days. And they haven't really gotten to the 20th century. And they would take the slaves and they would cut off their tongues so they couldn't really say anything against the uh, uh, the royalty and all the rest. Well, anyway, uh, there were some uh, slaves that they bought that they hadn't had their tongues removed. 
And uh, uh, so they were, and I was saying, well, why didn't the local people, when they saw abject horrors and so forth from the communists and so forth, uh, why didn't they complain? Why didn't they say anything? Why didn't they go on the uh, world stage? Why didn't they fight, you know, like they did? And, and he was pointing this out to me. He said that uh, once in a while you would see a couple of these slaves going to the market. And, and and some of them didn't have their tongues cut out yet. And they said, but they were always in the company of one who did. And so the, the point was, is that uh, he who has his tongue and had the ability to speak out was always in the company of one who did not. And so that, that uh, the ability to speak and resist and so forth um, uh, was re removed. And, and the slavery was perpetual, and, and uh, uh, an incredible uh, anecdote, uh, uh, um, one I will, will never f forget, you know, and those of us who have our, our tongues and so forth, and the ability to resist should. You know, sad thing, like uh, what they call it, pro progressive democracy in America. Uh, all that is, is that you have a uh, uh, communist re revolution and stuff, which is by force. Well, it's almost like the fifth column. They don't have the ability to have uh, a successful war. But what they, they can do is, is uh, um, try to get the principles of communism inculcated here some other way other than by force. And progressive democracy means that they are pro progressively, they're using democracy to, to get uh, those uh, tenets of communism and socialism across. And, it, and it's almost like... Uh, um, uh, we are seeing a, 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 a massive amount of people with with a, 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 that kind of an ethic who have no tongues. I don't know if that's too abstract of a concept to, to get across what I'm trying to say. No, I, uh, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why it's interesting, you know, like when a book like the Gulag Archipelago was mm -hmm. released. Soldier, Soldierism. Yeah. yeah. And, and, Essentially, I mean, that really led to the demise of the USSR very quickly because all of a mm -hmm. sudden the world became aware of what was happening. And, and he was a, a high ranking uh, military officer who then was put into a gulag because he was fighting mm -hmm. in the West and in Germany, I believe it was Germany that he was fighting in because he was corrupted by Western ideas and was thrown into uh, a, a gulag and then you know that book obviously right. describes the My understanding is that uh was it stalin when when finally the war ended and and the prisoners were released that that all the russian prisoners that had been ca captured by germany and the west uh he thought they were so contaminated even in a prison system that that he when they got to russia he simply put them into a russian prison camp the gulag and, and the, the, the taste of freedom and, and democracy and, 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 and all the rest is so pervasive and, and endearing that, that he was afraid that just to be touching, touched by it would be enough to corrupt them and realize that the people would realize that the communism is so awful and so rotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, that's why it's so interesting that all you have to do is pick up a book. You know, like really the information is, is there. You know, if there's, if there's an idea that you're curious about or something that you're unsure about, there's a resource for it. Um, mind you, you have to be careful about what, where you're going um, 
for that resource, but you know, something that's a, you know objectively held to a, a high standard in, in this case, mm -hmm. the Solzhenitsyn's book, mm -hmm. how, how you could possibly read that. And it actually took me a couple attempts to, to get through it because it's so, um, th there's so much anger in his writing. He's so angry with what is occurring that it's, it's, it, it, it wears on you. Um, because it's just that you cannot believe that what mm -hmm. this what this individual was writing was was a reality you know me sitting yes. in vancouver you know reading this book right you know you think about the scenario that you're in versus when it the, the reality under which it was written um it's right. just, yeah it's it's re really makes you think yeah different. i think it was dostoevsky uh and his one on the prisoners kind of said the same thing you know that um, um, he he was arrested and all this kind of a thing, and he had no idea what he had done. And I think I don't know if that was letters from the underground or, but one of those uh, um, uh, uh, similar thing, the, the the horror of the gulag and all, all the rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just became aware of the time. So I these oh. podcasts go by so quickly. So we're still doing okay. Um, we want to I, I want to skip I don't want to but for time uh to skip chapter 15 chapter 15 uh is when you go to uh one zero school mm -hmm. and the the stories in there I mean in the close call that that you have or close calls that you have um are, are ridiculous to the point that you could actually reach out and touch the enemy's foot as they were passing by mm -hmm. your team I mean you just can't even it's it's so hard to believe but the one thing that i i don't want to skip because i did not know this um then i came across it australia mm. so just kind of briefly uh before we move yeah. on to chapter 16 what what was the the maybe not the role but how how was australia involved in in this conflict they were given a section of South Vietnam as their area of operation, uh, just as the South Koreans did as well. And, and so ver various countries that uh, were trying to stop the communists in, in Vietnam were given certain areas. And, and I know for sure Australians, they had the Australian sector, and they had one horrendous firefight at the beginning of the war. It was, it was incredibly dangerous. And then, of course, the Koreans, who um, were very, very worth it, they had a division of soldiers, which is 10,000 men, 100% of them were black belts in karate, and they were very ruthless people. They were very, very tough. And uh, there's no record of communists living in their division in their area. You know? So anyway, that's, that's Australia. And uh, um, it, it's like going, when I, you know, dealing with the major that was giving us the briefing, it was like you're going back to World War II as he was there in the shorts and the baton under his arm and, and uh, uh, the little hair mustache and uh, um, the, the way that they tried to be so formal. And then at the end of it all, he realized that, you know, you're dealing with experts in this. You know, he went right back down to being a human after that. And, um, interesting thing, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and the training 
you know, training. I mean, that, that was a, mi a mission that, um, or at least your training concluded <laughs> with a mission that really wasn't a training mission. I mean, that was very much real <laughs> danger, real enemy. Um, the closest right. again, I, the fact that you could reach yeah. out and actually touch the enemy was, I mean, and I, and I was a point man on that one. And, and, um, uh, going through the, the, some of the densest jungle I've ever encountered and full of booby traps everywhere. And I, I actually, without realizing, I crept so close to an enemy outpost. I was aware of it when I smelled his breath and he never noticed my presence. So we had to somehow back out of that thing because it was intelligence. It wasn't for to fight him. It was to gather intelligence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to say other than just, oh my goodness. Um, so yeah, so unfortunately we, we just for time, um, have to skip through that. The only thing that I'll just cover really quickly here. Um, so this is what chapter 15 ends with. So, uh, Joe Morris, um, I can't remember if we actually mentioned him in, in the first podcast, but he was a member of, uh, RT Florida. Um, couple of very interesting stories about him uh so as you get back um a few days later one of the guys in como gave me a message from joe morris at our radio relay station on the top of leghorn so at this time he's no longer on the recon team he's moved to a safer position um so this is what the message says dale here i am on the top of leghorn the safest place in all the sog operations Yesterday, when I was walking along the perimeter and checking the security, lightning hit a claymore mine beside me and knocked me for a loop. I wasn't hit by any shrapnel, but I know this. There is not a safe place for Joe Morris in all this country. And I can hear John Stryker-Meyer saying, just another day in SOG. <laughs> I can hear his <laughs> voice true. saying that. Yeah. Um, just, yeah, ridiculous. Um so chapter 16, two chapters to cover, uh, 16, and then jumping ahead all the way to the final chapter uh, of the book. But when, so I actually, I actually briefly read this section, but I listened to it on the audiobook. So this was the chapter that I, I actually made it to on, on the audiobook, um, which is read by uh, yourself. So I just was kind of um confused actually because th this chapter opens with um it's the arrest of hopefully i don't butcher this mm -hmm. name but colonel Rowe, mm -hmm. right and so he was the commander of all special forces in vietnam and so i'll just set this up for you to describe it so we have the the arrest of colonel Rowe. we have tensions between special forces and general abrams there's also uh, discussions about uh, the treatment of a, of a spy, of a double agent. Uh, so when I was listening to this, I was going like, am I actually hearing this correctly? Then I had to go to the book and then I read it and I'm, okay, no, this is actually what's what's happening. So just for the sake of time, because obviously I can't go through and, and read um, what's going on, we're going to cover your mission that occurs in this chapter as well. But before we do that, uh, just basically just describe the, the lay of the land, what, what's happening with, with tensions here. Yeah. Well, um, there's a, his name was Chen, I think is his last name, Chuan yes, or something like that. Yeah. And, and um, he essentially was a double agent. 
And we had uh, in special forces, we had eight teams, you know, the, the camps. And then we had CNC, which is SOG. And then we had other projects. Well, he was involved in B-57, the Project Gamma. And at that time, uh, special forces through the, that uh, system of missions was responsible and gathered 75% of all intelligence that was ever learned in the Vietnam War during that time. And uh, it was very, very successful. Well, um, Mr. Chuan was working for special forces <clears throat> and we were laying out spy networks uh, uh, in Laos, Cambodia, uh, uh, Vietnam, and, and uh, very highly successful uh, ambush techniques, things like that. Well, anyway, it turns out Mr. Chuan was a double agent. He was actually a communist agent. And what he was doing was he was letting the communists know when we were coming, who was coming, and all this stuff. And, and we were having teams completely wiped out, uh, teams compromised. Um, uh, if they were all uh, indigenous teams, uh, they would be doubled and so forth. So basically, it got so bad. We had such casualties that Saigon, uh, our, our SOG headquarters, uh, actually canceled the entire mission, which, if you could imagine, canceling out the source of 75% of your intelligence is pretty significant. Well, anyway, uh, uh, a conventional unit had over in the Viet Cong area and found a, a bunch of documentation, pictures, and things like that. Well, Mr. Chuan's picture was there with the communist headquarters and, and showed that he was a communist agent and he was being decorated and greeted and all that stuff, you know. So somehow we had to get him back to find out what all he learned and all that kind of a thing. And so we uh, um, made up another program in which his expertise was cer certainly needed. And he came to apply for the big job. And as soon as he showed up, we er, er, took him and we gave him sodium pentothal, this tooth serum and all that stuff and interrogate him in that, at that point. I am not going to help the Americans and all this stuff, you know, um, very clearly. He was a communist agent. Well, anyway, um, the CIA had a couple programs. Uh, it was, well, a program. And it was called Project Phoenix. And, and then they changed the name and they changed it to PRU, which is an innocuous uh, acronym that meant Provisional Reconnaissance Unit. But their job essentially was to get rid of permanently uh, um, the fifth column, the, the infrastructure of the of the war and so forth, find the double agent and stuff and, and just eliminate them. And, and you probably don't like Geneva Convention only has to do with people in uniform. Uh, it doesn't have to do with the others. So anyway, um, uh, the special forces went in, in, to the CIA, whose job it was to destroy these people, said, we got Mr. Chuan. Uh, you want to take him? And they said, why do we want him? Uh, he's already told you he's not going to cooperate. Well, and so special forces said, well, what do we do with him? And they said, eliminate with extreme prejudice, of course, which means kill him. So uh, the, the new commander of all special forces in Vietnam and uh, eight of his people were, were kind of together and they decided how they would destroy Mr. Chuan. So they, they jacked him up with sodium pentothal. So and uh, so that he was basically unconscious, you know, but big time sodium pentothal, and they hauled him out into the harbor uh, and um, lifted him up out of the sack and shot him twice in the head and dumped him with, with the weights into the the harbor. Well, anyway, somehow uh, uh, Colonel um, General Abrams 
got word of it, and he did not like special forces. We actually commanded more mercenaries than he had Americans, you know, and uh, and we we weren't under his thumb. He couldn't give us orders. So um, uh, basically, he said, "Well, now is my chance to get rid of those Green Berets." And so he went and arrest, arrested the commanding officer of all special forces in Vietnam and several of the people and put them in metal connexes at Long Bing Jail. And uh, um, to skip all the in-between stuff, we were going to spring them with our mercenaries. And, and uh, um, when we actually infiltrated right up to his, his connexes, he said, no, we, they, they can't possibly have charges on us. He couldn't believe that. And he said, don't bother. We'll be, we'll be exonerated anyway. Well, anyway, um, enter my mission. Then we were, um, uh, it was Lima 50 was the target, David. We were behind enemy lines and uh, enemy every, everywhere, just tons and tons uh, of communists. And I uh, wound up in firefights and so forth. Um, uh, I wound up getting wounded, I think, uh, the second firefight. <clears throat> And that was the birth of the 30-round magazine because I, we had still had 20-round magazines and the communists had AKs with 30-round magazines. So I'm reloading while they're still shooting at me. They got me in the hand. And, and uh, um, so anyway, we spent the night uh, hiding from the enemy. They were tracking us with dogs and the, and the whole thing. They had hundreds and hundreds of people around us. Um, the next day, uh, we bumped into a... a uh, a, a bunch of enemy uh, and had to have a firefight and we killed them. And uh, uh, we were getting intelligence from them. So uh, the two other Americans and I, we were holding off the enemy and then we went over and we started to take everything. Uh, he had a big satchel on, on him. We took his clothes, his shoes, his boots, because they would analyze them as where, where was the cotton grown to make the clothing and all that kind of stuff. And anyway, in the satchel, it was full of American money. There were pages and pages. I think it was 80 pages, top secret orders. Uh, he was uh, going to deliver a commendation to two places in the in the tunnel system, two underground factories and an underground uh, medical facility uh, in the communist, you know, underground, you know, 200 miles of underground facilities. And um, also at Ben Hitt, which we just talked about, 52 NBA soldiers who shot themselves in the legs and stuff so they wouldn't have to go into the battle and be killed there on the field. Uh, he was going to uh, administer discipline on those people. Well, and, and, um, and then he, he, the other thing, which was really important, was that he was the paymaster as well. They were both Chinese, and they were both colonels, and they were on the way to South Vietnam to pay off all their agents. And he had a list of all the people that he was supposed to pay. And one of those names was Mr. Chuan, the guy that Colonel Rowe had arrested. So anyway, long and short was this, uh, um, we were in a running firefight trying to get out of there. Uh, um, we had several firefights and, and toward the end there um, on the LZ, they had us surrounded. There was um, uh, actually um, Mr. Ryan who was shot three times in the chest months before was flying Covey. And, and uh, he told me that uh, there were over a thousand enemy just right on the LZ and there was only seven of us. And uh, we were calling in airstrikes right on top of us. And uh, I mean, those was 500 pound bombs that we were talking about, the Gatling guns, and it was just, the trees were being shredded and everything else. And I was off by my side 
uh, a little bit away from the people. And uh, and I was holding off the, the communists on that side, and the bullets were coming so strong, the grass was being mowed in front of me, and I had my rucksack in front of me. I could, it's strange how you can hear certain sounds above explosions, but I could hear the hissing in the grass from the bullets. And, and then one my, my uh, Ba, the one with the Buddha uh, uh, around his neck, kept yelling, he says, Hansan, Hansan, you know, uh, my name, you know. And he says, Hansan, Hansan, worthy him die. And I, I ran over, and, and Ken Worthy was shot in the neck, and he was killed. And I, um, I, I, when he first talked, I thought he wanted me to make him come alive. And I said, I, I, I get him out of here. And the chopper was coming in finally, and I says, hoist him up, uh, get him out on the chopper. And I said, put this, and I grabbed the satchel, and I said, put the satchel in his shirt, because I wanted that satchel gone. And I thought I was the only guy left on the, the field. And I'd set the people, they were all either dead or, or they're going to be gone on that chopper. And um, so anyway, I thought it was the only guy left alive and I sent him out. And then um, uh, I was holding off the enemy on the other side. And all of a sudden over um, the shooting and all that stuff, it was really loud. Um, I, can't, I heard my name, Hansan, Hansan. And uh, the, the chopper was there and, and with the rope and all, all that. We were being pulled out by ropes. And um, um, he says, Hansa, and they would be waving. And I saw um, uh, uh, Bob Garcia was alive still, and he was the one on the radio. And so anyway, um, uh, ran over there because they were holding the, the chopper for me. And I, I couldn't, my hand was all messed up and I couldn't tie a knot. So I did a huge overhand, put it in my snap link. And um, the chopper started to lift us out and I was shooting down and they were attacking me, and I got shot again, this time in the back of the head. Um, and then uh, finally, the, the chopper started to lift us out, but they were taking so many hits. Instead of going straight up until we cleared the trees, he went sideways and drug me through the trees and almost pulled me in, in two, you know, and it was chopping with my, my, uh, my knife and all that stuff, trying to get away. And finally, we broke free and I uh, got out of there. And then uh, in the hospital, uh, they told me that it was the heart largest intelligence find of any small unit of the entire Vietnam War. And on the basis of that, that list of spies, uh, the commander of special forces had to be released along with the people because indeed he was a double agent. Interesting uh, mission. You know. <laughs> to say the least. I, I mean, I know it's... <clears throat> so, and for the listener or viewer um that that chapter it's a fairly lengthy one as well and and the detail in it is again you know this is just a a fraction of of what actually occurred and and understanding the what actually happened um mm -hmm. so but for time obviously you know we just have to do what mm -hmm. we need to do um what stands out to me as well, uh, not just the, the the mission itself and and the fact that while there were casualties uh, suffered, that any of you guys made it out alive. I, I just, mm -hmm. you know, and and especially being um, drugged through the trees, that was common where mm -hmm. you'd get pulled down or and fall out. You know, that was something that was common just because of how dangerous mm -hmm. that was, and yet still made it through. So, you know, again, when you when you look at it with like a more of a holistic view um it, it just you kind of scratch your head and wonder and and the fact that the the information that 
is recovered during that mission led to the exoneration of a colonel who never really should have been imprisoned anyway and right why was he there and why did the cia not just take care of this individual who clearly was a double agent and then so just for it all to come together um in that fashion mm-hmm. it's just i don't know there's no words i, I keep repeating yeah. the same words i don't know what else to say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but my goodness so and and with that uh the one chapter that i i really wanted to make sure that we did cover uh chapter 23 uh called fernando and so when i so when i buy a book uh, of any kind i like to read and i don't read it very carefully i like to just skim read the last chapter and i've mm-hmm. always done this and i don't know why i do this but i do it in a way where i don't really pay too close attention and if i see something important i kind of look away and keep moving so i don't pick up too mm-hmm. much but for whatever reason i just when i was a little kid i started doing this and i've always maintained that little quirk of mine and so when we spoke i guess about a month ago now or maybe about six weeks now uh to, to first set this up and and just as our introductory call uh i told you well i just got your book you know a couple days ago and i i skim read this chapter um and what jumped out at me it's, it's called fernando and so when i read the title i'm like oh yeah that abba song called fernando that was the first thing that popped in my head and right. sure enough that actually has a role in in that chapter and so to close out today's podcast i, I just would like to discuss that with you so what is chapter 23 all about um 22 and 23, 22 is saying goodbye. And, and the difficulty it was to actually say goodbye. I think most people were glad to get out of the so-called freedom bird. And in my case, I'm leaving these good people you know, behind. Then you get to the end and, and you fast forward to many years and I go to the reunions and uh, um, we're old, we're wrinkled, we're, we're, we have our... Um, we're dying, you know, um, sometimes one a week, you know, and uh, I go to the reunions and um, I remember 10 years ago, you would you'd slap each other on the back or hug or shake hands and say, see you next year. And now you you, you look at someone and, and you say, this might be the last time we ever see each other, you know, and, and there was a couple of other guys that I shed tears because I didn't think I would see them again. And you, and you look back uh, in Fernando, you know, start off, I, I don't know how much time you got, but um, oh, I started off, yeah, off with this lady in the old folks' home. And she's uh, an irascible old lady, just someone who's just angry in life, I guess. And I'm visiting her, and her name is Mrs. Olson. And she doesn't re- recall that she's actually in a pioneer home you know, a, a retirement home. She thinks she's back on, on the homestead, you know. And she says, you know what life's about? You know, and I says, I, I think I do. You know, as a Christian, I, I do. And she said, no, you don't know what life's about, you know. And she and she points out the window, you know, she can't see out there, but she says, you take that pump out there. You know, she thinks she's getting water from the well. And she says, you take that dipper and you fill that full of water. And then she says, you put your finger in that in that cup of water. And he says, your finger, that's you. 
And he says that cup of water, he says, that's the world around you. That's life. That's everything that's going on. He says, you pull your finger out. No one ever knows you were in there. And I thought, well, you know, that is something I really don't want ever to be said about me. And that's my little, the the big chief notebook from the very beginning. You know, I want to have some impact uh, on my life. I want to have a redeeming value in my life. And uh, so so anyway, uh, uh, you kind of go toward the the end there. And and you look at all of us who are in SOG. uh, The people that are in there were incredible heroes. And just unbelievable what they did over and over. I mean, they used to say parachuting, you can usually get somebody to jump out of the plane one time, you know, and that you can't get it. Well, we went on these missions over and over and over, you know, and uh, these are incredible people, which is why I I need to write because their stories need to be told, you know. And a lot of these guys come out of the war and stuff and they, become a janitor in the high school and never no one ever knows what they did and so forth throughout life some uh, go to some remote cabin and they spend the rest of their life there um, or some of them uh, uh, raise families and, and uh, things like that and nobody ever knows what they did you know and so we go to these reunions and we sit around well anyway at the end of the last chapter, I've got them. Someone plays his cassette player and he plays Fernando. Uh, do you hear the drums, Fernando? Since many years, I haven't seen a rifle in your hands. Can you hear them? You know, and it goes on. And, and these two old veterans of uh, the Mexican-American War, one of the wars, um, are reminiscing, you know, and uh, back in their memory, they remember those times. And, and one of the lines was even, uh, even that they didn't win. You know, they can still remember and, and they admire each other. And um, and I, I, as that song is playing, the, the room is kind of silent as we're listening uh, to that song. And, and all those people around that room are Fernandos. Every one of them, you know, I look at them and those are Fernandos I'm looking at. And um, when it ends, one of the guy is, guys are talking and this year, you know, he's got the oxygen tube under his nose and, and he's talking and he, he gathers up his breath. And it's almost like he's trying to build up enough oxygen to say the whole sentence. But he says, you know, uh, um, I, I was talking actually just before he does. And I, I said, you remember that lonesome dove, you know, and at the end of it, Gus has uh, uh, got gangrene on both of his legs and they took off one. And uh, um uh, he won't let him take off the other, and he's dying of gangrene. And his friend uh, uh, comes uh, to see him, a lifelong friend, almost like us in, in our last reunion there. And um, and uh, he comes out of his kind of a coma, and he looks at uh, uh, um, Woodrow Call, and he looks at Woodrow, and he says, it's been quite a show, hasn't it? And uh, he, he just says, Augustus, you know, and... He dies, you know, and the guy with that oxygen tube at his nose just looks at the rest of us in the room. He says, it's been quite a show. That's how it ends. I've said this numerous times. I know it's difficult not to repeat myself on the podcast, too, because I also forget whether or not I'm telling the same 
story or saying the same thing uh, off the air or on the air and just after the show or during the recording. But uh, certainly, you know, in that term, even hero, it's like uh, it just gets thrown around so willy nilly. Um, mm-hmm. Like most things, I think nowadays, you know, the the, the value that words hold uh, good or bad doesn't really seem to be felt or understood. It just gets, mm-hmm. it's just tossed around. But certainly, and at least for me, and I've read the book. So I, as I'm asking you a leading question, of course, you know, I know what you're going to say because I've already experienced it firsthand in, in, in my experience in reading it. And even, you know, to hear you describe it and I'm just sitting and just taking it in and just trying to feel what it is that you're expressing. Absolutely. You know, the term hero is 100% applicable to so many of of those who are still around and those who aren't, uh, because you, you, there's so many instances of just incredible bravery and courage and to get up and do it again and again and Mm -hmm. again, um, you know, it, it's so moving. And then to think that for so many years, the non-disclosure agreements that you all signed, you couldn't speak about it, not only to each other, to nobody. This was, mm-hmm. we're going to, de- you wear sterile fatigues. If you're captured, the American government is going to deny you existed. And mm-hmm. despite all that, no one ever talking about it. No one, even the, the awards, the medals that were given out, far too few there should have been many more that were handed out um and deservingly so and the recognition the rightful recognition for what occurred um and and still to to think that you know you're sitting in that room uh you know in that hall in vegas during this this reunion and to just sort of sit around that table and and you guys have that shared experience you have that brotherhood and you understood firsthand the cost, you know, what that took from you um, as individuals, but as a, as, as a collective, as, as one mm-hmm. team, really. Um, mm-hmm. And to just be a part of that and to understand that, you know, it's been quite a show, you know, mm-hmm. it's very, I get goosebumps, you know, even just talking <laughs> about, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's shocking. Um, and to think how fortunate I am, to sit here and to be able to sit down with you and Roger and John and, and hopefully more to come. Um, I mean, it's just an absolute honor to be able to, to share your experience and your stories with people who I hope you've gone and listened to the, to the other ones with John and Roger, but if you haven't to continue to, I mean, do my part. It, it, there needs to be, it needs to be talked about and people need to understand, you know, what it really means to be a hero and what, what the consequence mm-hmm. of those, um, mm-hmm. of that action is. Um, so, I mean, with that, I think it's a, we, we did time it somewhat. Okay. At least we, we managed <laughs> to get through the majority of it, but, uh, just want to say again, and as well for the viewers, I got the, the, the pendant that you carved um, for mm-hmm. me uh, among the other few uh, sculptures that um, you can find on the Instagram account when this episode is up. But it's just an absolute pleasure to, to record with you, to speak with you, to learn from you. And I'm very excited to, to see you down in, down right. in Las me Vegas too. in October. <laughs> right. so, thank you so, so much. And thank you.